Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. And this week, we're talking about burnout and bad days. So, first of all, I want to apologize for not getting a podcast episode out last week.、Um, but this kind of leads into what I'm talking about this week, and that is burnout.、Uh, even as a teacher who's been teaching for a long time now, Um, I still experience some burnout. I think everyone experiences burnout during the school year. It's a little bit more、uh, magnified when you're in your early years as a teacher because the work is a lot more difficult when you're doing it for the first time.、Uh, but burnout is a serious issue for teachers. Recently, Dr. Linda Darling Hammond, professor of education emeritus at Stanford University,、uh, stated that 90% of high poverty schools are struggling to find enough special education teachers. There was also a government report from NCES in 2015 that showed upwards of 20% of teachers quit within the first five years. I know I've heard that 50% statistic floated before, but these are the most concrete numbers I could find in regards to teachers quitting and burnout. Either way,、uh, I want to focus more on what we can do to avoid being part of that statistic. First of all, it takes a specific kind of person to be an effective teacher. And if you found that teaching is not for you, by all means, you know, find another career that is more well suited for you. You know, you don't want to be working in a profession that you don't want to do, or that you don't enjoy, or that you just don't feel like suits your life or your lifestyle. Anyway, for those of us who are still deciding or are still here, Let's talk a little bit about what you can do to help you avoid burning out. So, teachers are 10 to 15% less likely to quit teaching if they have a mentor. So, mentorship is a huge deal. Ask your principal for a specific mentor and time to work with them if you can. Now, in the state of California, we have BITSA, which is the California Beginning Teacher Support and Assessment. Which is theoretically a mentorship program, but the truth of it is, there's so many loops for you to jump through to pass your BITSA certification that it ends up not really serving the function that I think it was originally intended that it would serve.、Uh, the truth of it is, an effective mentor will help you get through your first year in many ways, and really, you might just need someone to hear your concerns, maybe someone to vent to,、uh, you might need someone to help. Plan、uh, methods, help create your discipline plan, help with your pacing, and help with a situation with a parent. It's a kind of a mixed bag, and it's going to be hard for me to say exactly how a mentor can help you.、Um, ideally, a mentor is someone who is a veteran teacher that is confident in their teaching and has experienced a lot of different circumstances so that they can kind of help you through situations that are new to you but not new to them at all. Now, it's not going to be the same for everyone, but maybe I'll do a separate podcast on mentorship later on. Maybe send me a quick message if you think this would be a good idea. Okay, so what else might lead you to quit the profession or burnout? The NCES report also showed that teachers who are working at a lower starting salary are more likely to quit the profession as well. So it's something you should know if you don't already 
that teaching as a profession is going to be relatively underpaid if you look at correlative professions with similar levels of education. There are some districts that will pay a little bit more and it's really going to depend exactly on it's really just going to depend on where you work but across the board it's pretty common that teachers are not paid very well. Now what can you do to kind of make a little bit more money if this is a concern? Well obviously first of all you can find a job in another district but obviously that's not ideal. Some things teachers do or they coach in order to make a little bit more money. You can always take on extra roles or extra duties to uh, make a little bit more money, but I wouldn't really recommend that in your first couple of years because it's likely that you'll be pretty tired from all of the work that you are doing. But maybe just keep that in mind later on that you know your salary will increase and you can increase your salary with extra work by anywhere from $2,000 to ten dollars to $15,000 depending on if you take on extra roles or extra duties at work. Another statistic that was shown from this report was that older teachers who began the career after the age of 30 were more likely to leave the profession than younger teachers were. I'm not exactly sure why that might be. I would imagine perhaps if you're a little bit older, you have a previous profession to return to, whereas a younger person might be looking for something new that they're unable to fall back upon. Uh, men were more likely to leave the profession than women. Teachers who enter the profession through alternative means are also more likely to leave the profession as well. So for example, if you came in through Teach for America or some other cohort type program that is non-traditional, you have a higher likelihood of leaving the profession. So keep that in mind if you did come through one of those programs. It's likely because those programs don't prepare you quite as well as the traditional programs. They're not quite as, as vigorous. So keep that in mind. Surprisingly, teachers who work in high poverty areas versus teachers who work in low poverty areas are only slightly more likely to leave the profession. So that's pretty good news. If you work in a low income area, it shouldn't be something that will drive you away from the profession. And take that for what it is. Just kind of know that these are factors that may contribute to you leaving the profession. Okay, enough with the statistics. I want to talk about more personal things that might lead you to burnout. Bad days. You will have bad days. Try and remember that it's your first year and you will not be good at this right now. Think about any skill you have. You were probably bad at said skill your first time doing it. I remember when I was a kid, my dad bought me some rollerblades and I felt like I was good at it right away. But the truth of it is, I wasn't really that great. In fact, just a few minutes into rolling around the yard, I fell down pretty, pretty badly. It's kind of funny when I look at the video that my dad took of that day, I can tell that I was very wobbly and unstable. In fact, at one point, my dog comes over and tackles me and I hit the floor pretty badly. But because I was a kid, I was having so much fun that falling didn't really bother me at all. I just kind of got back up and tried again and I would roll around a little bit and then I'd fall down and get back up and try again. But you can tell by the look on my face that I'm having so much fun. Now by the end of it, I'm pretty beat up. My, my knees are kind of bloody and I've got kind of scratches all over the place. 
but you know I enjoyed it I would eventually do it again and again and it would become one of my favorite childhood memories and hobbies I think this is the approach you should try and take to your teaching try and have fun try and enjoy it get up again when you fall you know students have a pretty short memory when it comes to your class if you have a bad day or a bad week you can recover from it remember you think about your class much more than your students do your class is only about an hour of their day full of other events and although for you you're thinking about your work and your lessons and how it's going kids are not really focused too much on on that right so they can have a pretty short memory now inside your classroom you may have to deal with circumstances you had not anticipated things can kind of come out of left field you may be moving along in a lesson and next thing you know a student does something or says something that completely veers it in a direction that you had not anticipated in fact just this year i had a student answering a question in class and i don't even remember what we were talking about but the student in answering the question accidentally used a racial slur to answer the question and the whole class was just kind of shocked and i had to kind of step in and, and redirect the conversation and say that well I think what you meant to say was, and then I kind of answered in the question. And the interesting thing was, as I was trying to help the student and trying to help kind of veer the conversation away, the student kept wanting to interrupt and explain himself. And unfortunately, as he was doing that, he used a couple more racial slurs and I had to kind of shush him a bit uh, before I moved on. And that was not something I had anticipated whatsoever. There will be moments where you just kind of think to yourself, oh my goodness, I need to get out of here. I need to get out of this circumstance or this situation. And you just need a backpedal or a sidestep and move on as quickly as you can. Try not to attribute malice what you can just incompetence or accidents. Now these situations may not always be accidental. Sometimes they may be conflict with students. When it comes to conflict in your classroom, the thing you'll want to focus on most is trying to give kids a way out. So find a way for students to have a way out of the situation. You know, you'll really want to be a de-escalator. I remember a time where there was this teacher and this teacher was teaching his class and it was going normally. And outside of the class, there were two kids that were skateboarding to their next class, right? They were already late to class, maybe like 10 minutes late to class. And the kids admittedly should not have been skateboarding to their next class. They're actually at our school. They're not even supposed to have them on campus because the boards have been used in fights in a couple of uh, circumstances. So they're not even supposed to have them on campus at all. But the teacher saw this and the teacher walked outside and started yelling at the students like, hey, where are you going? What are you doing? You need to get off those boards right now. Right. Which admittedly, sure, you know, that seems like an okay response maybe not ideal but it was fine and the students responded with well what are you going to do about it and the teacher then responded by saying 
you don't want to see what I'm going to do about it. And then their student responded with, well, go ahead then, go ahead then. And then teacher came back with, all right then, we'll walk over here and see what I do. And you could kind of see that with every word that was said in this conversation with the student, it began to escalate and escalate and escalate to the point where the teacher and the student were standing in front of one another, face to face, kind of gesturing, like a fight was going to break out between uh, the student and the teacher. Fortunately, in this scenario, security arrived shortly after this and separated the two and, you know, took the, the student in. And, and I could kind of see how this was a little bit the teacher's fault for escalating this circumstance. And I'm not saying these students were innocent. They were obviously kind of knuckleheads and were not really thinking about what they were doing. But in this circumstance, the teacher was actually the one that kind of escalated the situation, right? When you confront another person, the manner in which you do so is going to affect how they respond. It's kind of similar to a situation I was in when I was a little bit younger. Uh, my friends and I were swimming in the ocean. We're swimming around and kind of looking at the corals and things. And we decided we we're going to swim out a little bit further, right? We're going to swim a little bit further from the shore. The water was really clear. It was really nice. So we thought, you know, yeah, let's let's take a swim. It looks so nice out here. So we swam out uh, maybe 50 yards or so from the shoreline or from from the reef. And as we we're swimming out, we, we saw, you know, there were a lot of fish in the water. It's like, wow, it's so beautiful. And we're looking around. And it was at that point that uh, I saw a barracuda in the water. And if you don't know what a barracuda is, it's the, it's the same fish from uh, the Finding Nemo movie, uh, the one from the beginning of the movie that's kind of scary looking. But uh, yeah, it's kind of funny. When I saw the Nemo movie, I kind of had a little bit of a, a flashback to this, this moment. But I saw this barracuda in the water and I popped my head up out of the water and kind of gestured to my friends like, hey, there's a, there's a pretty scary fish over there. I think we should get out of the water. And we, he and my friends looked over and they popped their heads back up like, oh man, I think that's a barracuda. Uh, yeah, okay, like we better get out of here. So we started swimming back towards the shore. And as I kind of turn back, I look and I see the barracudas following us. And I'm thinking to myself, like, you know, there's no way we're going to swim faster than this fish. Like, this is not, this is not going well, right? So I think to myself, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to veer off from the group. You know, I think we should, we should split up, right? So it's not just following, following all of us. So I veer off and I don't really see the barracuda anymore. And, uh, you know, start swimming back to, back to shore. As I'm swimming back, I turn and I look up. And I see, okay, yeah, my friends have made it back onto the reef. They're kind of climbing up onto the reef. And I'm looking around kind of in the spot that I'm in. And as I'm looking around, I see that the barracuda is between me and the reef. It's about 20 feet or so between me and the reef. And there's the barracuda right in between. And it's not looking at me or anything. It's just kind of swimming there. But as it turns and it looks at me, I can see it kind of thinking about the situation that it's in. It's kind of swimming around in a small circle and it's looking at the reef and it's looking at me. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, from the Barracuda's perspective, 
I kind of have it trapped in this corner, right? So it's looking at me and as soon as I kind of realize the accidental situation I'm in, I decide I'm going to swim laterally as fast as I can so that the Barracuda has a way to get out that is not through me. Uh, fortunately, you know, I swim to the side and the Barracuda just kind of swims off and I, you know, I take a deep breath and I climb back onto the reef. Uh, but this kind of reminds me of how you should act with, with students, right? Sometimes students are going to feel that in a moment of conflict that they have no way out. And the thing you want to focus on as a teacher is you'll want to provide them with a way out, right? Provide them with a way for them to kind of save face and get out of the situation that perhaps they've created, right? That's the hard part of some of this conflict or some of these situations is that a student will be breaking a rule of some kind and you will be the one that will have to be the adult, be the mature one, and provide them with a way to get out of the situation and get back on task and get back to learning. A lot of this will have to do with your setting of standards and expectations, right? If, if you set clear standards and expectations with your students, you will be able to fall back on that when you're in these kind of moments in, in conflict. There are a couple things you can focus on when setting standards and expectations that will really help your management in your class in the long run. One of the things you should really focus on when you're thinking about how to manage your class is your consistency. Be aware of your own inconsistencies and be aware of how you speak with students, all students. You know, imagine a scenario. Think about every type of students that will break every type of rule in your class and think about how you will address that infraction in a fair and effective manner. Right. Think about the nice kid in class that breaks your rule. Think about the kid that's always breaking the rule. Kids will focus in on how you address this conflict. And the more consistently you can address these conflicts, the better your classroom environment will be. Another strategy you can use is storytelling to get a point across. That is something I use in my class all the time. For example, there's this story that I tell to my kids about something that happened in my classroom and it ties back to my rule in class about not wearing hats, hoods, or beanies, or do-rags, or any kind of head garment inside of the classroom. So obviously I don't want them to wear these things just because it's more professional for them and more academic for them to not have these things on. And a lot of times students hide earbuds under hats, hoods, or beanies. And a lot of times students will kind of create their own little shelter underneath their hats. So I think it's just better for students to focus when they don't have the hats on. But if I only said that to students, I think that perhaps it would not drive the point home quite as well. Uh, another reason why I don't allow students to wear hats, hoods, or beanies in the class is so that I can look into students' eyes and look at their faces as they come into the classroom. You know, I greet all of my students as they enter the class every day. A hat is a great way for someone who doesn't belong to sneak around inside of a school. Now, I know it's statistically 
unlikely that there will be an intruder on a campus. Uh, but I tell the kids about a time when an intruder came directly into my classroom and was approaching another student. You know, I never thought something like that would happen, but the person came in and the person was kind of hiding under a hat. And I knew that this was not one of my students because the moment that students come into my classroom, they know right away that they're to remove a hat, hood, or beanie, and they greet me at the door. This person came into my class and started approaching another student. And as he came in, I walked over and I just kind of grabbed him a little bit, you know, not aggressively or anything, but kind of grabbed him to stop him and said, hey, what are you, what are you doing here? And it's interesting because the person kind of freaked out a little bit. And in my mind, I was thinking like, whoa, 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 why are you freaking out? You are the stranger here. You are the person that doesn't belong. And I asked them for their identification and I got security there and I got them taken away. And, you know, I tell the students about this to kind of drive home the fact that I don't want them to wear hats, hoods or beanies in the class. But it's just kind of a interesting story to tell so that they can kind of remember the rule. Okay, I don't have time to get into more right now because I do want to respect your time, but maybe I'll address a similar topic in the future. If you enjoyed this podcast or the past couple of podcasts, it would be great if you could head over to wherever you find your podcasts and give me a rating. That would be really helpful for the podcast or share it with somebody who you think might get some value out of this podcast. As always, if you have any questions, you can always contact me at contactnewteacherpodcast at gmail.com. I hope your last week was great and you're enjoying your day. Have a good week. Thank you.